Welcome to Series 3 of Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. In this series, we are speaking with senior portfolio managers to explore their view of investor relations, what constitutes best practice in corporate communications, and learning more about how companies can optimise their dialogue with their shareholders. In today's interview, I am delighted to be joined by Matthew Tillett. Matthew has been the lead manager of the Premier Mighton UK Value Opportunities Fund since October 2022. He was previously a senior portfolio manager at Alliance Global Investors, where he spent 15 years, most recently as the lead manager on both the Alliance UK Opportunities Fund and the Brunner Investment Trust. Welcome to the Inquire podcast, Matthew, and thank you very much for joining me today. Great. Thanks for having me on. So let's start by you telling us a little bit about the focus of the Premier Mighton UK Value Opportunities Fund and your investment process. Yeah, sure. So it's a UK equity fund around 330 million or so in size. It's a multi-cap approach, which means that we are not constrained by the benchmark index, FTSE All Share. So we we invest across the, the whole market cap spectrum, mega cap, and right the way down to sort of hundred million size companies. And we have a, a value-oriented, somewhat contrarian approach to how we go about looking for new ideas. So we, you know, we tend to be looking in parts of the market maybe are a bit sort of out of favor for various reasons. We find it easier to find mispriced ideas in those areas of the market. That's what's kind of worked for us over time. And you do have a slight emphasis, or you certainly do invest across the market cap spectrum, but particularly when we're thinking about small and mid-cap stocks, where broker research coverage tends to be much lower than for large-cap companies. I'm interested in how this affects your approach to researching companies, in particular what you need from investee companies in terms of investor communication. Yeah, so we like the small and mid-cap end of the market in the UK is because there are a lot of companies to choose from and they cover a much sort of broader spread of kind of industries actually than you get at the top of the market. And the fact that there's less broker coverage, there's less liquidity, there's a bit more volatility, you know, that means for us there's probably more likely, you know, we're more likely to find value and kind of mispriced stocks at that end of the market. So that's why we like it. It's certainly true that the broker coverage is not as good. The research isn't as good. It's got worse definitely since the MIFID 2 rules came in. But on the other hand, I think there's also some things that are better about it in that you do actually get better access to management than you would at the top of the market. And in some ways, it's certainly I've always, for somebody who's very kind of into the weeds of the fundamentals, it's sometimes it can be a lot easier to actually really get on top of a business model and a company and really understand it when it's smaller in size. You mentioned MIFID 2. How has that changed your firm's approach to to research coverage? For example, how much do you sell-side research compared to internal research? Have you beefed up your internal equity research team, for example? I've always done a lot of my own research anyway. The people I work with are the same. So we, you know, even pre-MIFID, we were never kind of investing in companies just based on what the sell side was saying or what, what an analyst was saying. So in that sense, I wouldn't say it's kind of dramatically changed my own investment process. I think where it probably has changed is that it's a little bit, it's become a bit cruder, I would say, the research, because they're just, again, particularly at the smaller mid-cap end of the market, the financial incentives for the people providing this research is just not not there in the way that it was. So 
sort of sponsored research in a way so which can be useful in in some some ways like if you if you're just looking to you're looking at a new idea and you want to get up to speed on a company quickly you know sponsored research that goes through the business model and explains a bit about the history of the company that can actually be quite useful can save a bit of time but it's it's probably not going to help you that much in terms of trying to work out whether the stock is actually mispriced and I guess another way of saying it is I probably pay less attention to the recommendations today than I did. And do you have a, a view on the kind of required breadth of research coverage for a stock or just generally where do you access consensus data from? Do you look to companies compiled consensus or do you use market aggregators? I wouldn't say we would only we don't only invest in a company if there's broker coverage of a certain level. We you know we're we're quite open minded about it. I suppose for us it's probably more about liquidity. We're not afraid of illiquidity. We will go down to the bottom end of the market, kind of hundred million market cap or so. But you've just got to be pragmatic about it. Yeah, unfortunately, the market liquidity has got worse in recent years as well. So you've got to factor that in, just in terms of position sizing and how much of your fund you can have in that kind of end of the market. So that's more, I would say, the constraining factor rather than whether or not there are analysts covering the stock. No, that makes sense. And in terms of, you've talked about being able to invest across the market. So you've got a very wide investable remit. At the same time, UK markets obviously seeing fund outflows, which are creating full selling, making it very hard for, for companies to attract the investors. And obviously, declining liquidity is a major factor in that as well. Can you share a bit more color on how you screen your universe of stocks to decide which companies you're actually going to do more work on? And how can companies increase their chances of getting on your radar for you to research and potentially invest in them? Yeah, so screens are one source of idea generation for us. We have quite a few sources of idea generation. You know, some of them are just more kind of qualitative in nature, actually. Ideas that come from, from other contacts, colleagues, external contacts, the other companies, etc. Just sort of network that you build up over time. But we do also use screens as well. And they're, and they're typically centered around a combination of sort of valuation versus sort of operating financial metrics. So be looking for you know a low valuation combined with reasonable quality operating metrics which we would define as sort of operating margins return on capital that sort of thing and then typically strong financial metrics as, as well and then we'll just see what we yeah, we will we'll track those screens and see what comes up and if, if there are companies that we don't know or haven't looked at for a while then then we'll go and have a look this is all just the idea generation phase of the of, of the process you know we will then if we decide to take something further we will do a lot more research into it in terms of sort of things that we might kind of avoid or or kind of red flags certainly for me like what one kind of real sort of bugbear i think it's got worse over the year is so aggressive accounting practices heavy use of adjusting items that sort of thing and i think it's got worse over the course of my career and i also think most people doing my job probably agree with that and i think we're we've sort of got getting to a point now where investors in the market are actually starting to look through this stuff a lot of the time and so my advice to companies would be i'm not saying never take any adjusting items or because yeah, sometimes it is right to do it but just try to kind of be as sparing as possible with it because if you just do it every year then it will just become factored into the mm. way people look at the company and value it and you'll just trade the stock will just trade on a lower valuation as a result 
been a focus area for auditors recently as well. So companies are under more pressure to give more balance to statutory measures alongside adjusted measures in their yeah. reporting. And and as you say, you, I mean, you publish the full, companies publish the full accounts. So you can just make readjust the adjusted yeah. items to get to the metrics you're screening. As yeah, well. no, we yeah. do that. I mean, we track, you know, when, when we look at a new company to invest in, I mean, we will look at the you know, typically in sort of 10 years of historics and we will we will look at those things and we'll look at the conversion of cash flow into sort of operating profit and the extent to which that doesn't happen is often a function of adjusting items and and the extent to which those adjusting items are actually kind of cash in nature. It's relatively easy to see what it is. Really helpful advice there for companies. So turning now to best practice in corporate reporting, I'm interested in how important companies' investor websites are to you and what information you're looking to find there. Obviously important and become more important, I think, over time. It's often usually the first port of call for information on the company. I mean, one bit of advice I would say or, or sort of feedback from me is I think companies would do well, particularly small and mid-cap companies, would do well to just focus on getting the basics right. Because it's amazing how many how many of these websites are actually you know, yeah. not don't get the basics right. I mean, it's just things like making it easy to navigate, easy to find what you want. It's amazing how many companies don't put their annual reports like in. I mean, they usually are up there, but they're sometimes kind of yeah, actually quite hard to find. The other thing that I've I've noticed some larger companies have started doing in the last few years, which is actually quite useful, is in addition to the the annual reports and the presentations, they sometimes have these kind of Excel downloads where you can kind of pull off the financial information in a format that is often a lot more useful than what you would get if you downloaded it from, say, Bloomberg or DataStream because it's the sort of format that the company looks at and it will have a lot more detail on it. And certainly for somebody like me that's that's going to put all that information in anyway, if I can extract that quite quickly, then that's that saves me a lot of time. And I, it may be that, that that's something that consumes a lot of management time to do that but i certainly find that quite quite useful videos and sort of introductory kind of some infographics and stuff like that are all, are all good and everything but get the basics right first and then then do that stuff yeah i agree um, completely we always tell companies to have you know your key financial reports available within minimal amounts of clicks on the investor website the downloadable yeah. financials it shouldn't be too hard for companies to pull that together because often they yeah. have that management information for the reporting process it's just always worthwhile for companies to get legal or cosec to sign off on it before it's public. Yeah. do you engage much with digital video content or do you tend to click straight through to the results themselves i mean a little bit but I'd say, I mean, we're quite traditional, really, and uh, you know, as a lot of sort of value investors are, we spend a lot of time on the annual reports, the financial statements, because that's where the information that you know has to be there is in there. You know, whereas the the sort of promotional stuff is, by definition, it's going to be promotional, isn't it? So it's gonna it's gonna have things that it's gonna have the good stuff in it, and not not the bad stuff. That doesn't mean that we don't look at it. It can be useful to see companies trying to explain a certain part of their business and they've got a useful kind of video that explains it, then yeah, sure, I'll watch it. But it's not, I wouldn't say it's the sort of swing factor in terms of whether or not we're going to make an investment or not. And how relevant is social media to your investment process? And if you use it, which platforms do you engage with? I have to be honest, uh, personally, I'm not a heavy user of it. I'm a little bit sort of sceptical of quite a lot of social media i just just the information on it it can be good but a lot of the time it's not necessarily trustworthy i don't think i really i necessarily really need to from an investment point of view to rely too much on it that makes sense 
When you're looking at companies, RNSs and results presentations, you, you've already shared some great examples of, of best practice in reporting. Just any thoughts on the right balance for companies between backwards and forwards looking data, short and long term strategic commentary? Yeah, I think in general, I'd say there's probably too much focus on the very recent past and probably not enough focus on the kind of bigger picture in terms of the sort of longer term history and the sort of longer term outlook in terms of sort of the context of kind of where we are today in the context of a sort of 10-year period, as it were. And I kind of understand why why that is the case, because a lot of sort of share price behavior in the short term is driven by what's happened in the recent past. And a lot of the kind of short term trading activity, you know, is driven by that. But I think long-term investors are less less that they are less focused on that. They are they they're more interested in in the longer term. And ultimately, those are the sort of investors that you probably want to get on your register. My advice would be, you know, I understand you've got to cover the short-term stuff, but also try to sort of steer people more towards what you consider to be the longer-term sort of drivers of value within the business. You've already discussed the importance of the annual report to your investment process. As reports continue to grow in length, I'm interested in how much time you spend reviewing a company's annual report, and particularly which sections you pay the most attention to. It's funny, I was reviewing a company in the last few days, actually, and I was sort of going back through all the last 10 years annual reports. And it was it was interesting how every single year the you know the, the financial statements seemed to start about 10 or 15 pages earlier every year. It's sort of, you know, so you sort of added about 100 100. 150 pages over the course of a 10-year period. The big change has been obviously been the increase in everything related to to sort of ESG, really, and in a broad context, you know, whether that's sort of climate disclosure, community, social, diversity, governance, etc. Now, I'm not saying I don't think that's important. I, I do, you know, sometimes look at these sections, but but to be honest, like most of my time is spent on the on the financials, directors' reports, remunerations, and the financial statements themselves. And I suspect most investors. It's definitely those without an explicit kind of ESG mandate would probably say the same thing. I'm not saying that, that those increased areas of disclosure shouldn't be there or available somewhere because they are important. I, I just sort of wonder slightly whether the annual report is the right place for some of it. But I, sometimes I wonder whether there might increasingly be a better kind of format for it. You know, some companies in the mining sector, for example, now have kind of separate sustainability reports yeah. where, where they have, you know, a kind of 100, 200 page document that explains what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I wonder if that might be a kind of a sort of blueprint that we could move to more generally. And if it carries on like this, it's going to get to the point where it's a bit, it just becomes a bit sort of unmanageable. Good. And then in terms of more in-depth educational events like Capital Markets Days, we've seen a real increase in companies hosting these events over the last 18 months. Are these events helpful to you as an investor, particularly for site visits on offer or access to the broader management team? Yeah, I think they're I think they're good as long as they're well kind of thought out and have sort of a kind of clear purpose. So for example, ones that focus on a particular geography or division i think are quite useful because you can kind of go get into a bit more detail in that that particular area i'm not somebody that's very often kind of going or sort of dialing in on the day as it were obviously if it's a site visit it's a bit different because you might you might kind of go sort of physically to be there and i see that as a bit different to actually to a capital market state whereas a, a more general capital market state I, i'm more likely to kind of 
catch up on it on a later date yeah. or, or if i'm looking at a new idea and there's there's been a capital markets day in the last year or something well that's that's interesting i'll definitely look at that so yeah. i quite like the fact that there, it's a, it's up there and it's available to review at a later date the other sort of advantage that doing it after the fact that i like is you can you can just read a transcript which obviously you can do quicker than the listening so turning to your dialogue with companies how frequently do you like to meet with your investee companies and what's your preferred meeting format particularly for an ir audience is there any way ir teams can help you uh, before meetings or around key events like results so it varies in terms of what we're looking for and the number of times we meet companies, I'd say most companies, it's probably one to two times a year, but it can be more or less depending on, on the situation. Our approach to company meetings is that it's not really a source of idea generation. I'd say we, unlike say some of some of my competitors who would say it would be, we tend to see companies once we're already quite a long way down the the, the the you know the research process if it's a new idea and obviously if it's an existing holding then it's already in the portfolio so in terms of what we're looking to get out of the meetings i'd say it, it again probably depends varies a little bit depending on whether it's a new or existing idea but we're typically with our meetings we'll we'll be looking to address maybe three to five kind of key topic areas and we do do quite a lot of prep sort of before the meetings so we we rarely will we just sort of be going through the slide deck when I see management, I really want to make sure that their time is important and they're taking time out to see us. So you want to make sure you get the most out of it. And then if there are follow-ups, ideally, you kind of do it through a kind of effective IR function. Do, do many IR teams actually follow up with you after the meeting? I'd say it's probably more the other way around. Like if there's something okay. that we yeah. had that came out of it, we might follow up with them. Or, or sometimes there's you know specifics that maybe question or something that where we couldn't the management couldn't give you know precise information yeah when i was in house i always used to just call up the investor a few days after the meeting just to bottom out any questions but also just get feedback as well it's quite a nice opportunity to do both i'm interested in how you give feedback actually yeah. so are you more comfortable engaging with a broker investor relations combination of both and any thoughts you have on the kind of questions companies should be asking when seeking feedback would be interesting as well yeah, so we I do give feedback. I understand it's important to companies, so I always try and take the time to do it. Most people seem to be doing these days. It tends to come from the brokers now, rather than the I've noticed rather than directly from the companies, and they tend to they tend to sort of have a set of about five or six questions that they ask really, and and you know that that works quite well for us because we can you know we can sort of answer them quite quickly. Do you attend many broker-led events like conferences or webinars? And how useful do you find these? I'm quite targeted in terms of, you know, when I want to look at something, I think something, uh, we, we think this stock might be mispriced. We want to focus on that. So because of that, I, when I've gone to conferences in the past, I've sometimes found them a little bit, when you see sort of seven or eight companies in a day, and some of them are not necessarily companies that were on your radar anyway. It can be, I just personally find it quite difficult to sort of collate all that information. What circumstances would you look to want to speak to the, the chair or the senior non-exec rather than management? I suppose on, well, obviously, if there's an issue with management, <laughs> executive management, that's the sort of the obvious one, or, or things to do with remuneration, succession, corporate activity, 
uh, and and bigger bigger kind of strategic questions, I suppose, around corporate structure and and kind of the general direction of the company that, where there are big kind of decisions that have to be taken. Uh, and just any final thoughts on how management and or investor relations can best win credibility with investors or on the flip side, how might they lose that credibility? You sort of do very well. And then if you get it, if something goes wrong and then you get the communication of it wrong, you can lose that reputation quite quickly. We, we in particular, I think newly listed companies need that first. And yeah, first at the front actually, that's of a mind. good point, actually. Yeah, I, 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 it amazes me how often I see this happen with newly listed companies. I mean, I, I, it's one of the reasons I basically hardly ever do IPOs. I've, I've done like kind of, I could probably count on one hand the number of IPOs I've done in my, my career. And they usually when I've done them, there's been something very specific reason for it in yeah. terms of the situation. It takes years to recover. Yeah. Um, again, it can be quite interesting as a as a contrarian investor. Actually, I have a whole kind of there's a whole sort of category of investment that we look for when so IPOs that have gone wrong two or three years down the line because there's no no natural shitholder and people have given up and there's no sort of public markets history, but companies can avoid. avoid yeah, it absolutely. By, well, um, I mean, good, good segue into let, let's talk about UK market currently. Yeah. So poor performance, very depressed valuations, which is frustrating for companies, but a genuine practical concern. Lower share price obviously makes it harder to raise additional capital to grow, leaving companies vulnerable to to those opportunistic bids. I'm Mm. really interested in your perspective. So what's the outlook for the UK market as we look ahead to 2024? And any broader comments you have around the UK economy currently? So there's UK market, UK economy, not the same thing. UK market revenues somewhere between about 15 and 30 percent of domestic uk economy so the majority is outside the uk economy important that people understand that because a lot of the reasons that people give to explain there's the situation that we have today where we, we have this discount on the market whichever way you cut it there's a quite big valuation discount you can adjust for things like differences in the sector and, and you know the fact that we have less tech and US has lots of tech. Even if you make all those adjustments, you, you still see, see quite a big discount. And then as you go down the market cap, the discount gets even bigger. And it's really, you know, the valuations at the bottom end of the market are just so kind of, I mean, they're so low at the moment. It's really quite extraordinary in some areas. The various arguments that are given for that, a lot of them are related to the UK economy or UK politics, underperformance of the economy, inflation, political uncertainty, debt levels, all these, there's various kind of iterations of the argument. And the reason why I don't really find any of them very convincing is because whenever I line them up and compare them to what's going on in other countries, Europe or you know, even the US, most of the time, this country doesn't really come out looking much different to anywhere else. I mean, we have some specific challenges in certain areas, but we also frankly look quite a bit better on other areas and yeah. and that's not to say that they aren't real problems but they they are challenges that i think the whole western world faces i don't think we're really any any different actually so there's that so there's that and then there's the fact that as i said at the kind of market aggregate market level if you adjust for the differences in sectors you, you don't you still get this quite a big discount so then that leads to the question of you know why is is this way and I, my personal view is that it mo- it's mostly actually explained by technical factors uh, and the fact that we've had this ongoing situation where money has been coming out of the domestic UK um, equity market in order to reallocate to 
the US and sort of global and more recently it's the money's come out of equities generally to go into go into sort of fixed income and, and bond gilts and term accounts and things as, as as rates have gone up. And that's created this situation where you've got, you know, just a lot more sellers than buyers. And as a result, the valuations have been driven down. So if you ask me reason as a contrarian value oriented investor, that makes me bullish because I've got a situation in front of me where where I've got a lot of cheap companies, cheap stocks, where businesses that, you know, they don't have fundamental problems. Like they're good. I'm investing in good quality companies that I think are going to grow nicely over the long term. And I'm being able to buy them at historically really low valuations. And I'm not having to also, I'm also not having to take a massive bet on the UK economy to do that. So that's that's kind of bullish on a long term view. But I, you know, if you ask me what's going to make it turn around, yeah, you know, in in the short term, it's you know, I think what well, here I think there's a cyclical and a structural question. So there's, I think cyclically the effect of the rate interest rate rises around the world and the monetary tightening has effect. I think that's affected all equity markets, but it's we've not been we've you know we've been affected as well we didn't have any of the benefit before though because we were getting outflows from basically from 2016 from the day brexit happened we've been dealing with outflows from the market continually so we got kind of already starting on quite a kind of depressed level and then it's kind of kind of gone lower so i think cyclically if that we get to a point where we don't need rates to go back to zero we just need some sort of stability i think and in the monetary policy and the interest rate environment so that people can have confidence that we know it's four or five percent going forward or three or whatever just that we kind of have have that confidence that it's not going to five and then to six and then to seven and then to eight which is a bit sort of where the kind of fear is in the market at the moment i think when you see that happen you'll see like quite a strong rebound in a lot of areas of the market because there's a lot of sectors that have been very very affected by the, the rise in interest rates and, and I'm frankly more than discounting it now. So that's the cyclical. There's then a more bigger structural question around this problem of of capital in the in the UK market. And that goes beyond the cyclical question because we we've so we've had this situation since 2016 where there's just been this constant pull of money from from the market. But it actually even goes back uh, longer than that as well. It goes, if you look at the bigger pools of capital, you know the defined benefit pension funds and the defined contribution pension funds, which are huge amounts of capital. I mean, sort of trillions. There's been a, an ongoing, well, you know, a huge trend since the early 2000s when when the rules on pension funds were, were changed to basically kind of de-risk, and they went from having sort of 50, 60 percent in UK equities to having almost nothing now. And the defined contribution schemes also tend to be more, they tend to just go into kind of global tracker funds and that's, you know, 67% US. Uh, so what we don't, I, I think structurally, if we want to kind of get the UK market really going again and kind of make it a sort of properly kind of vibrant place with valuations that kind of, you know, are more comparable with the US, what people want to invest in, then we've got to somehow create a kind of natural pool of capital yeah. that that is wants to invest. Uh, and it, and 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 back companies in the UK that want to stay here and list here. Um, and if we don't do that, then uh, you know I think we doesn't mean it can't be a good investment from the current level because you've yeah. got this very attractive kind of starting point from, from a valuation standpoint. But in terms of the sort of the size of the market and the number of companies on it and the, and you know the prospects for kind of new IPOs and new issues, yeah, you know, that isn't going to come back unless we can 
kind of reverse this trend. I think we we should play to our strengths here. You know, we should not. I know the government's very keen on. You know, we want to be the next Silicon Valley, and they sort of look at the West Coast and think we can do that. And it, which is all fine. I kind of understand that. But we got to also got to recognise the reality of of you know what we have in the UK, and we we are quite good on technology. You know, we do have good domestic tech sector, um, life sciences, professional services. We have all these things, but they're not enormous companies they're not the googles and, and alphabets of the world they're generally smaller companies and if they're going to come and stay listed stay in the uk and list on the uk market they're probably going to start as small caps or mid caps and maybe they'll get bigger over time in that situation you you almost because because the, the big tech companies in the us they benefit from all the flows of money that go yeah. go into tracker funds because those tracker funds all just buy those stocks and because it's a huge pool of capital that supports those companies and their their valuations. Whereas, you know, here, it, that's not going to be the case here. So we almost need to, it's almost the opposite. You need to kind of recognize that you actually need to have, you know, funds that are out there kind of investing in listed small mid-cap growth companies and and support them and recognize that it's not all just about a race to the bottom in terms of cost. You know, otherwise, yeah. you know, where's the capital going to come from? Um so you supported with some of the proposed sort of reforms to increase equities ownership in the UK and, and maybe some of the listing rule reforms as well to make it more attractive for companies. Yeah, def- definitely the latter. I think, I think, yeah, I, I think it's it's anything we can do to kind of reduce the burden on companies. And yeah, and also, I, I, yeah, I am supportive of, of I'm not saying I'm, every single thing that's been suggested, but the general kind of trend that the government is going in, I think is I think is the right trend. But I do think that there needs to be an understanding that the equity market is part of the broader ecosystem of domestic capital. So we can, we can have. It's all, I'm, I'm totally supportive of, of using domestic capital to invest in infrastructure and private markets and, and growth companies and, and, and all of that. That's, that's great. We should do that. But if we also want to keep those companies here so that when they get bigger and they want to list they want, and, and to, for them to stay here and list here, we've also got to make it so that the market, the domestic market is attractive to them because at the moment it's not. And they'll either just sell themselves to an overseas company or go and, or worse, go and list overseas, as we've seen happen, you know, with 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 some some yeah. other examples. And and it doesn't need to be that way. We should be able to find a way to make this this market an attractive place for for companies to stay as, as it has been in the past. And by the way, there are lots of other countries around the world that do this sort of thing. There's one one of the pushbacks that I've heard is, you know, we, we shouldn't government shouldn't be telling owners of of, of capital and uh, asset owners here where to invest. Um, but you know, you go look at what, they, what happens in Australia, or Canada, or US. You know, there's those capital markets. Are, you know, they have structures like this in place where you know, big pools of capital are either explicitly or implicitly directed to invest at least a chunk of their capital in the domestic markets. And so, I don't, I don't see any reason why we we shouldn't do the same. Yeah, really valid point there. I've never had so many times I have a meeting and the, and the, you know, the subject of the share price comes up and the valuation and I get a sense that a lot of managements are sort of really quite down about it. And the only thing I would say is just don't give up. There is a, I, although I've sort of talked about these kind of structures, there is a, sick, a big cyclical element here as well. And I, I do think it looks pretty extreme to me in terms of, you know, over the course of my career, I've not seen anything quite like this in terms of yeah. just, just how out of sync a lot of these share prices and valuations are with reality. And I, I, if my experience is any guide, like that doesn't last that long. Usually something happens and changes and things look quite a bit better. And so I just sort of stay patient is all I'm saying, you know, as long as you keep doing what you're doing and performing, it will come good. 
That's really helpful advice. I think there's a lot of pressure from boards on management teams. What are you doing about the share price? And we're seeing companies, I mean, I think that's why we're seeing more educational events like aftermarket stays. A lot of companies are changing brokers thinking that might reignite some sort yeah. of interest in, in the share price, which yeah, may or sure. may not yeah. prove successful. Yeah. So yeah. it's I, I think so it's coming from sort of board level that that pressure on management teams to be seen to be proactively doing yeah. to address the share price. But as you say, the, the market will come around and, and there's some merit in, in just yeah. keep- and I often say to them, look, you know, you're not the only ones. Like you might, you might feel like there's some problem with your short share price, but honestly, like, I can show you my portfolio, and you know, you, you I line you up against all these other companies, and, and often there's you know all sort of alternatives in there in the sector that are quite similar. You know, so it's not say, look, it's not a problem with you. Like it's this is a more of a general kind of problem that's unique to the situation today. And just to wrap up, because we're almost out of time, I've worked in IR for eleven years. Are there any questions you'd like to ask me while I'm here? The only thing I'm slightly curious of whether you've noticed any difference in terms of the kind of people that are coming in, because it certainly feels to me like the the sort of caliber in in IR has gone up enormously over the over the last sort of you know fifteen twenty years or so. I think we were already seeing that shift in terms of the professionalization of IR. It was becoming much more seen as a strategic role. If you go back to when I started, I mean, IR in some companies was an administrative role. And in some instances, you had the kind of PA to the CEO dealing with the the investors communication strategy. So it has become more strategic. I think MIFID 2 has accelerated that because... When I started in IR, you could almost rely on the sell side to be out there marketing your stock to investors, to be educating investors on your behalf, to be out there sort of getting in front of new investors. And and since the sell side has sort of contracted, I think the onus is now on companies to to be responsible for that. And then step forward a few more years to today where we've got share prices under a huge amount of pressure. You've really got to stand out from the crowd, be consistent in that delivery, establish a reputation as a, a company in terms of how you communicate. And, and that requires good, competent IR. So we're yeah. seeing more people from investment banking backgrounds, broking or sell side moving into IR. And, and that sort of increased the the professionalization of, of the role, which I think has been a really fantastic yeah. thing for my Yeah, I think that's too. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's a, it's a sort of natural evolution, isn't it? Given the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me on Inquire and for sharing your insights and perspectives on companies' communications with investors. And thank you for joining Inquire, the Investor Relations Podcast. Please look out for our next episode.